Section 1 of The Golden Bough, Part 3, The Dying God, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 1. The Mortality of the Gods. Mortality of Savage Gods. At an early stage of his intellectual development, man deems himself naturally immortal, then imagines that were it not for the baleful arts of sorcerers who cut the vital thread prematurely short, he would live forever. The illusion, so flattering to human wishes and hopes, is still current among many savage tribes to the present day, and it may be supposed to have prevailed universally in that age of magic, which appears to have everywhere preceded the age of religion. But in time, the sad truth of human mortality was borne in upon our primitive philosopher with a force of demonstration which no prejudice could resist and no sophistry dissemble. Among the manifold influences which combined to wring from him a reluctant asset to the necessity of death must be numbered the growing influence of religion, which by exposing the vanity of magic and of all the extravagant pretensions built on a gradually lowered man's proud and defiant attitude towards nature, and taught him to believe there are mysteries in the universe which his feeble intellect can never fathom, and forces which his puny hands can never control. Thus more and more he learned to bow to the inevitable, and to console himself for the brevity and the sorrows of life on earth, by the hope of a blissful eternity hereafter. But if he reluctantly acknowledged the existence of beings, at once superhuman and supernatural, he was as yet far from suspecting the width and the depth of the gulf which divided him from them. The gods with whom his imagination now peopled the darkness of the unknown were indeed admitted by him to be his superiors in knowledge and in power, in the joyous splendour of their life and length of its duration. But though he knew it not, these glorious and awful beings were merely, by the spectrum of the broken, the reflections of his own diminutive personality exaggerated into gigantic proportions by distance and by the mists and clouds upon which they were cast. Man, in fact, created gods in his own likeness, and being himself mortal, he naturally supposed his creatures to be in the same sad predicament. Thus the Greenlanders believed that a wind could kill the most powerful god, and that he would certainly die if he touched a dog. When they heard of the Christian god, they kept asking if he never died, and being informed that he did not, they were much surprised and said that he must be a very great god indeed. In answer to the inquiries of Colonel Dodge, a North American Indian stated that the world was made by the great spirit, being asked which great spirit he meant, the good one or the bad one. Oh, neither of them, replied he. The great spirit that made the world is dead long ago. He could not possibly have lived as long as this. A tribe in the Philippine Islands told the Spanish conquerors that the grave of the creator was upon the top of mount cabunian he at siabib a god or divine hero of the hottentots died several times and came to life again his graves are generally to be met with in narrow defiles between mountains when the hottentots pass one of them they throw a stone at it for good luck some is muttering give us plenty of cattle mortality of greek gods the grave of zeus the great god of greece was shown to visitors in Crete as late as about the beginning of our era. The body of Dionysus was buried at Delphi, beside the golden statue of Apollo, and his tomb bore the inscription, Here lies Dionysus dead, 
the son of Simeon. According to one account, Apollo himself was buried at Delphi, for Pythagoras is said to have carved an inscription on his tomb, setting forth how the god had been killed by the python and buried under the tripod. The ancient god Cronus was buried in Sicily, and the graves of Hermes, Aphrodite, and Ares were shown in Hermopolis, Cyprus, and Thrace. Mortality of Egyptian Gods The great gods of Egypt themselves were not exempt from the common lot. They too grew old and died, for like men they were composed of body and soul, and like men were subject to all the passions and infirmities of the flesh. Their bodies, it is true, were fashioned in more ethereal mould, and lasted longer than ours, but they could not hold out forever against the siege of time. Age converted their bones into silver, their flesh into gold, and their azure locks into lapis lazuli. When their time came, they passed away from the cheerful world of the living to reign as dead gods over dead men, in the melancholy world beyond the grave. Even their souls, like those of mankind, could only endure after death so long as their bodies held together. Hence it was as naval to preserve the corpse of the gods as the corpses of common folk, lest the divine body and divine spirit should also come to an untimely end. At first the remains were laid to rest under the desert sands of the mountains, that the dryness of the soil and the purity of the air might protect them from putrefaction and decay. Hence one of the oldest titles of the Egyptian gods is they who are under the sands. But when, at a later time, the discovery of the art of embalming gave a new lease of life to the souls of the dead by preserving their bodies for an indefinite time from corruption, the deities were permitted to share the benefit of an invention which held out to gods as well as to men a reasonable hope of immortality. Every province then had the tomb and mummy of its dead god. The mummy of Osiris was to be seen at men's. Thinis boasted of the mummy of Anthuri, and Heliopolis rejoiced in the possession of that of Tamau. But while their bodies lay swayed and banished here on earth in the tomb, their souls, if we may trust Egyptian priests, shone as bright stars in the firmament. The soul of Iris sparkled in Sirius, the soul of Horus in Orion, and the soul of Typhon in the Great Bear. But the death of the god did not involve the extinction of his sacred stock, for he commonly had, by his wife, a son and heir, who, on the demise of his divine parent, succeeded to the full rank, power, and honours of the godhead. The high gods of Babylon also, though they appeared to their worshippers only in dreams and visions, were considered to be human in their bodily shape, human in their passions, and human in their fate. For like men they were born into the world, like men they loved and fought and died. The Death of the Great Pan one of the most famous stories of the death of a god is told by Plutarch. It runs thus. In the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, a certain schoolmaster named Epithyrses was sailing from Greece to Italy. The ship in which he had taken his passage was a merchantman, and there were many other passengers on board. At evening, when they were off the Echinadian Islands, the wind died away, and the vessel drifted close in to the island of Paxos. Most of the passengers were awake, and many were still drinking wine after dinner, when suddenly a voice hailed the ship from the island, calling upon Themis. The crew and passengers were taken by surprise, for though there was an Egyptian pilot named Themis on board, few knew him even by name. Twice the cries repeated, but Themis kept silence. 
However, at the third call he answered, and the voice from the shore, now louder than ever, said, When you are come to Palodes, announce that the great Pan is dead. Astonishment fell upon all, and they consulted whether it would be better to do the bidding of the voice or not. At last Thames resolved that, if the wind held, he would pass the place in silence, but if it dropped when they were off Palodes, he would give the message. Well, when they were come to Palodes, there was a great calm. So Thames, standing in the stern and looking towards the land, cried out, as he had been bidden, The great Pan is dead. The words had hardly passed his lips when a loud sound of lamentation broke on their ears, as if a multitude were mourning. This strange story, vouched for by many on board, soon got wood of Rome, and Thames was sent for and questioned by the Emperor Tiberius himself, who caused inquiries to be made about the dead god. In modern times also, the enunciation of the death of the great Pan has been much discussed and various explanations of it have been suggested. On the whole, the simplest, most natural would seem to be that the deity whose sad end was thus mysteriously proclaimed and lamented was a Syrian god, Tammuz, or Adonis, whose death is known to have been annually bewailed by his followers both in Greece and in his native Syria. At Athens, the solemnity fell at midsummer, and there is no improbability in the view that, in a Greek island, a band of worshippers of Tammuz should have been celebrating the death of their god with a customary passionate demonstration of sorrow at the very time when a ship lay becalmed off the shore, that in the stillness of the summer night the voices of lamentation should have been wafted with startling distinctness across the water and should have made on the minds of the listening passengers a deep and lasting impression. However that may be, stories of the same kind found currency in Western Asia down to the Middle Ages. Death of the King of the Jinn An Arab writer relates that in the year 1063 or 1064 AD, in the reign of the Caliph came, a rumour went abroad through Baghdad, which soon spread all over the province of Iraq, that some Turks out hunting in the desert had seen a black tent, where many men and women were beating their faces and uttering loud cries, as it is the custom to do in the east when someone is dead. And among the cries that distinguished these words, the great king of the jinn is dead. Woe to this country. In consequence of this, a mysterious threat was circulated from Armenia to Chazistan, that every town which did not lament the dead king of the jinn should utterly perish. Death of the Grape Cluster Again in the year 1203 or 1204 AD, a fatal disease which attacked the throat raged in parts of Mosul and Iraq, and it was divulged that a woman of the jinn called Am Unkad, or mother of the grape cluster, had lost her son, and that all who did not lament for him would fall victims to the epidemic. So men and women sought to save themselves from death by assembling and beating their faces while they cried out in a lamentable voice, O mother of the grape cluster, excuse us, the grape cluster is dead. We knew it not. End of section 1